0: That our joy today and for eternity is founded on the merit of Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray and ask for God's help as we seek to open His Word and continue to rejoice in the salvation that He has won. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for Jesus. We thank you that He is our Savior, our Lord the one whose death and resurrection has provided salvation. Lord, we rejoice in this truth. Help us not to move past it, but to continue to meditate and rejoice in it. And we ask this morning, Lord, that your spirit would strengthen us in our inner being to be amazed and be able to comprehend the immense love you have shown us in Jesus. We love you, Lord, and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd open up your Bibles with me to the book of Philippians, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 3. As Andrew mentioned earlier, I want to uh, wish all the dads in the room happy Father's Day. Thank you, brother. It It is truly a joy. It's a joy to get to be a dad, and I know I'm grateful for my father and his example of faithfulness and personal devotion and love for Christ. And fathers, by God's design, are role models that children look up to, that they can follow. And although imperfectly, we as dads hope to live in such a way that our kids can grow up to say, I want to be like that when I grow up. Everyone needs godly examples. We need to see what it looks like to pursue joyfully serving Christ for a lifetime. And in our study through Philippians, Paul has been pointing out model after model to help believers see and eagerly pursue Christ-likeness. And in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16, Paul expresses his own sort of explosion of spiritual ambition and he calls believers like you and me to follow his example would you look in your bibles with me as we read philippians chapter 3 verses 12 through 16 paul writes not that i have already obtained this or am already perfect but i press on to make it my own And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Repeatedly in this text, Paul declares with determination, I press on, I press on. Paul was running aggressively and energetically towards knowing Christ Jesus his Lord and being made like his Savior, And he calls us as believers to the same daily eager pursuit. The big idea in this text that Paul's wanting us to understand is clear. It's, it's this, that servants of Christ eagerly pursue Christ's likeness. We, as those who have trusted in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, are to be those who eagerly longingly pursue Jesus Christ. But like a spiritual father, Paul doesn't leave us guessing on how we are to have this sort of pressing on mindset. He teaches us, he shows us how we ought to think about growing in Christlikeness. And the purpose of teaching us this is so that we too will eagerly pursue Christlikeness in our daily lives. And in our text, Paul provides three instructions for running after holiness, three instructions for eagerly pursuing Christ-likeness. The first instruction we see is in verse 12. Look again with me. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. The first instruction we find is that eagerly pursuing Christ's likeness requires humility in the race. It requires humility in the race. Paul starts by acknowledging that he was not done growing into the image of Christ. He was not yet perfected, but he longed for the promised resurrection from the dead he had mentioned in the verse previously. This promise of resurrection life in Christ is the moment of salvation fully consummated. We often think of death as the finish line, but Paul holds out rising from the dead as an eager anticipation of glorification both body and soul. The desire to be freed from the presence of sin, to be sinless and fully sanctified, is the moment our faith is turned to sight. The Apostle John pens in 1 John 3:2: Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he, Christ, appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. The truth about being made perfect at the resurrection required Paul to humbly acknowledge that he was not going to be perfect during his lifetime. It's estimated that Paul, when writing this in prison in Rome, had been saved for 20, maybe 30 years. How many saints in the room today can testify by God's grace that they've known Jesus as their Lord for at least 30 years? I have good news. Paul wasn't perfect yet either, right? <laughs> We're not there yet. Notice here, though, how Paul responded to the fact, the truth of his imperfect state. Did he humbly uh, acknowledge his imperfection? Did that really cause him to sort of throw in the towel? I've tried for many years, decades now. I'm not there. Did he say, oh, well, I, I can never be perfect in this life anyway, so, so why try? No, it's the exact opposite response. He responds in verse 12 with urgency, but I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Pursuing Christ's likeness requires that we humbly acknowledge the truth, not just the truth of our imperfect state, but the truth of our salvation through Jesus Christ. Paul knows the salvation that has been accomplished by Christ on his behalf. Paul's sin had been atoned for, and he had received Christ's righteousness through faith. Positionally, Paul is a child of God. Practically, he is being progressively sanctified, continually growing in godliness into the image of Christ, his Savior. Paul saying that because Christ had saved him, he makes every effort to pursue the purpose of Christ's salvation of him. And that purpose is holiness. That purpose is being made like Jesus Christ. Paul says it clearly. He pens out God's purpose for us in Romans eight twenty nine. He says, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined, planned ahead this purpose. And it's this to be conformed to the image of his son. God's intentional plan for us and for all who believe in Jesus Christ is to be made like our savior. Paul's logic in verse 12 is that because God has saved me, I eagerly pursue God's saving purpose for me. Paul was saying my goal in this life is in perfect alignment with Christ's goal In saving me, Paul's acknowledging I'm not there yet, but I know Christ's plan for me, and I want to eagerly pursue it because I belong to Christ. We too, this morning, must humbly acknowledge both Christ's salvation of our souls and our state of imperfection. When we are amazed at God's grace and discontent with our present sinfulness, we will eagerly pursue Christ's likeness in anticipation of resurrection promise. This sort of eager attitude and fervency for Christ might seem to you this morning a little bit idealistic. You might think to yourselves, under the right circumstances, I have that fire for Christ from time to time, but that sort of drive, it wears out after a while, or at least I wear down. But Christian, are you content with sporadic zeal for Christ's likeness? Have you ever met an engaged couple, for example, an engaged couple pursuing marriage that doesn't really pursue that end? A fiancé with no ambition and aspiration to be a wife a betrothed with no desire to grow in being a loving husband someday. That would be pretty concerning. It would even be contradictory. Likewise, it's contradictory for us as a Christian who, who knows the love of Christ to grow complacent in pursuing Christ's likeness. Is there apathy in your heart towards fighting sin? Is there a lackluster attitude toward growing? to be like your Savior. The salvation that Christ has won and that the Spirit has applied has a purpose. And the aim is your holiness. God's purpose in your salvation ought to be your eager pursuit. Knowing Christ as your Lord is the motivating desire that spurs you forward. It's because Christ has made us his own that we press on we sprint with fire in our souls toward the finish line. And this starts with humbly admitting that Christ has saved me to make me holy. But it also takes humility to embrace the truth of our imperfect state today. If I had to guess, almost everyone here would readily admit their sinfulness, that they fall short, that they don't live perfectly, But I think that truth, for some of us, has not yet rooted itself deep in the soil of our hearts. As regular churchgoers, we can tend toward a sort of practical perfectionism that eventually leads us to become spiritually stagnant. For example, we compare ourselves to others. We think, well, at least I'm not as proud as Alfred, I'm doing better than him or sometimes we'll minimize and dismiss our sinfulness we say well that's just my personality or I'm sorry you were offended and we think that's asking for forgiveness we become content with coasting because we pursue ease and comfort not Christ likeness proverbs 132 warns of the disastrous results of this sort of attitude it says the complacency of fools destroys them. We too need to humbly admit that we are not yet perfect, not even close, and we need to foster a growing suspicion of our sinful flesh and a healthy skepticism that tests our actions and attitudes against God's pure and true word. And if we do this, the result will be that we will pursue change in accordance with God's word. There are also some here that are paralyzed by this practical perfectionism, but it looks like the opposite. We're continually evaluating if we're doing enough and are crushed to despair regularly because we can't be perfect. We compare ourselves to others and say, I'll never be as kind and considerate as Margaret. We sulk in our sinfulness and we say, I've sinned too much. There's no way God could love someone like me. There's just no hope for change. I'm stuck. Friends, we become stuck in our failure because we pursue a self-righteousness, not a Christ-likeness. But when we know both our sinfulness and our Savior, we will strive for holiness in the strength of his Spirit. When our hearts are drawn toward boasting in self, we look to our humble Savior and boast in His salvation that frees us and trains us to walk in His righteousness. When the waves of condemnation roar against our souls, we look to our perfect Savior and His glorious, righteous sacrifice that leads us again to repentance and faith. Humility in the race is essential if we are to eagerly pursue Christ likeness. But Paul presses even further in verses 13 and 14 to provide a second instruction for eagerly pursuing Christ's likeness. Look with me at verse 13. He writes, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The second instruction we find is that pursuing Christ's likeness requires focus on the future prize. It requires focus. On the future prize. Paul reiterates that he does not think of himself as having already arrived or achieved perfection, but instead he has a narrowed vision forward. He says, But this one thing I do. This is the fervent focus of a servant of Christ. And it's the same devotion that resounds from King David's lips in Psalm 27. He says, One thing I have asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. Like King David and many saints before him, Paul had a singular focus. And his description of this focused pursuit is one of a race, In a race, runners um, are, are seeking to achieve an end. And if a runner really doesn't know where he's going or if he's facing the wrong direction, they're not going to be progressing forward in the race. Likewise, if we do not know the goal or are distracted by lesser goals, we will lack the eager pursuit that Paul is calling all Christians to in this text. And Paul lays out a specific direction in our focused pursuit. He adds emphasis on this direction we are to run after by telling us not to focus backward, but to strain forward. In a race, sprinters are coached to never look back, to not even glance over your shoulder. That brief and minor change in orientation has the chance of ruining the race. Everything from their stride to their breathing pattern is altered the second they look back. But even worse, there is also the risk of injury from not seeing an obstacle or stumbling while trying to reorient your focus. To keep your form, you must keep your eyes on the prize. You must maintain your focus forward. And as Christians, the minute we are saved, we are thrust into this race of sanctification, a progressive process of becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. And if we are going to grow in this sort of sprinter's mentality, this fervent running after Christ's likeness, we must not get stuck staring in the past. But what does Paul mean by forgetting what is behind? We know in Scripture um, that we're often commanded and called and even modeled that we should remember all that God has done. Psalm 105.5 says, remember the wondrous works that the Lord has done, his miracles and his judgments that he has uttered. In Psalm 143.5, the songwriter models the importance of recounting the past by saying, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. Scripture instructs us to remember what God Has done. So, what is Paul getting at here? In the preceding context, Paul has just denounced all confidence in self and pronounced the infinitely superior treasure of knowing Jesus Christ, his Lord. Paul is saying that there is a way of looking back at self that becomes a drag on your spiritual race. And as I was studying this past week, I found three. Helpful categories of forgetfulness that we as Christians need to be aware of. Areas of the past that can distract us from our focus on Christ and becoming like Him. The three ways that we often get stuck in the past, looking at self, are these past sins, past sorrows, and past successes. Past sins can be dangerous for us when we get stuck looking at the past because of guilt. Past sorrows are a danger for us when we're, we're stuck in the sorrows of the past because we foster bitterness. And past successes are dangerous as well because it can foster pride in our heart and boasting in self. Paul would have known each of these. Just in the text prior, he says that he was a zealous persecutor of the church. Can you imagine the guilt of being the one who has persecuted and killed and imprisoned Christians, these followers of Jesus Christ, to be a persecutor of Christ's body? The guilt that can plague us is heavy. But he says, don't look back. Remember what Christ has done and look forward. He would have known the sorrows of ministry. He wrote multiple letters to churches that were very difficult letters to write, rebukes even. He wrote to the church in Galatia, rebuking them for veering away from the gospel. That's a sorrow. That's hard. He would rebuke the church at Corinth as well, and the more he loved them, he said, they would hate him. He knew the sorrow of John Mark, leaving the missionary journey. But he says, don't look back. Don't get stuck on those sorrows that produce bitterness, that distract you from your focus on becoming more like Jesus Christ. And thirdly, Paul would have been full of success, we would look at. He's he's an ideal example of what it looks like to pursue Christ's likeness. He's modeling it for us here, but more than that, he was a multi-church planter. He had a whole network of churches that he, he ran about and planted. He was uh, what I heard this last week it was a receptacle of revelation, right? In Scripture, he, he ascends to the third heaven, respe- receives this revelation from God. Can you imagine that resume popping down on any church's table? Hey, I want to be a pastor at your church. By the way, I get special revelation from God, and I've planted tens and hundreds of churches. Do you think there's an opening here for me? Paul says, don't look back. Don't polish the metals. Press. these are dangers for every christian if we become fixated on what is behind our muscles will weaken we will become spiritual cripples that are paralyzed by the past but the antidote is not amnesia the antidote is applying the gospel the gospel reminds us of what god has done to deal with past sins and how to fight moving forward The gospel explains God's sovereign purpose in suffering and the eternal weight of glory that is to come. The gospel points us forward, even in sorrow. And the gospel squashes any seeds of boasting and pride in self because, as we sang this morning, of Christ's all-sufficient merit. It teaches us to look forward and boast in our Savior, not in self. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not just good news for a moment, It's good news for your whole life and the eternity to follow. The gospel is the foundation for all Christian living. It's what everything is built on. It's what everything rests on. It rests on this truth. The truth that there is a holy God who you and I have sinned against. And the just judgment we deserve is to be condemned to eternity in hell. But God... Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, he sent his son, Jesus Christ. He sent him into this world to die in our place so that we might live through him. It's in the gospel that the love of God is displayed, scripture says, for all to see. And it's not that we have loved God and that we've earned this sort of love from him. No. It says, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the satisfactory payment for your sins. Friends, this is the immeasurable richness of God's grace and love on display. It's the free gift of salvation to all who believe, to all who turn from their sin and eagerly pursue trusting in Jesus Christ alone. If this is you this morning, if you have turned and trusted in Jesus as your Lord, you are in this race. And we need not graduate from the gospel, but rather grow in our amazement of our Savior. Then we will grow in our likeness to our Lord. For a runner, the past is simply the launching point for progressing forward. And the gospel is this explosive power that energizes your next step forward. That's the direction we are to be aimed at. That is the ambitious aim of all who know Christ as their Lord. Listen to this text again. Listen to the abundant directional focus of the apostles' language in verses 13 and 14. He says, forward, ahead, toward, and upward He's emphasizing over and over again this direction. And he says he's straining with every fiber of his being. He's pressing on. There's no sort of, well, I'm just going to stroll down the street of sanctification today. I think it's time for a water break. I should probably pump the brakes. or Can we just put it on cruise control for a little bit? No. He says it's forward and it's as fast as possible. That was his eager pursuit. This singular holy ambition sprints faster with each lap towards the finish line. It runs in anticipation of receiving the prize of knowing Christ fully and being made fully like him so that we will abide body and soul with our Savior for all eternity. I think this sort of devotion and ambition is often inspiring for believers. This fervent focus forward compels us to do more and try harder. And so we think, man, that was a great pep talk from Paul this week. I'm I'm really going to get after it. But I want to remind you, this eager pursuit only comes from being focused on Christ. It's the one thing I do. In the verses preceding, Paul was glorying in the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus his Lord. The eager pursuit that Paul is describing and calling us to is a pulling ambition, not a pushing one. If you know me very well, you know that I have a, a love for sports. I enjoy lots of sports. but if I had to pick a favorite, it's definitely soccer. It's, it's the go-to. I, I love soccer. If you see a church picnic going on and there's teens and young adults like kicking around a soccer ball, I'm maybe talking to you, but I'm like moonwalking over to the soccer game because there's this just, I, I got to play. I got to go. It's so much fun. I love soccer. I love watching it, and you, you eagerly pursue growing your skills to do a rainbow or juggling or how you're going to improve your touch on the ball. I'm just pulled towards it, right? And then I had daughters, and I was like, women's soccer in the United States, it's like premium, right? This is good news. We're going to have some elite female soccer players. So they're babies, right, and you get the little soccer ball, and you're, like, showing them what to do with the feet, and then you pass it toward them, and they pick it up with their hands anyway, right, and they drool all over it. They don't get it yet, but you kind of just push their foot at it and hope that something comes of it, right? And they get a little older, and they're like, man, I want to play soccer. Like, Dad, he loves that. And we get them signed up for soccer, and they do a little, like, demo session, right? And by the end of it, you know, you're encouraging them all the way through, and at the end, you're like, what'd you think? What, how was it? How you? Is it just the best? And they're like, Yeah, I I think I'd rather do volleyball. <laughs> you know? It's like they're being pushed along because it's like, well, dad likes it, and but it's not really my favorite, and I really want to do volleyball like mom, <laughs> you know? That's where the bug is right now. It's not like that pulling feeling. It says, Man, I love this. I want more of it. Are you being pushed along in your race? Or are you being pulled? If you are being pushed, you will grow weary. You will experience burnout. You will be frustrated with your fellow Christians when they offer correction. You will shy away from responsibility and fellowship with the body. But, friends, the solution is not to retry pushing yourself along. The solution is being pulled forward by Jesus Christ. You don't need to focus on your ambition or the lack thereof. You need to focus on Jesus Christ. Many Christians have a genuine love for Christ. They really want to grow. They want to see sanctification progressively move forward. But they don't know what they're doing wrong We get overwhelmed, we get discouraged, even to the point of despair. But I think the issue is not that you don't have any love for Christ. The issue is your focus on Christ. Like Peter on the water, we see the winds and waves, and we become afraid and distracted. We begin to sink, and in desperation, we too cry out, Lord, save me. And Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Friends, your faith is grown by focus on Christ. He is the object of our faith. We must rejoice in and revel in and grow in our love for Christ. And that's only from seeing him as he's revealed himself in his word. When your eyes are feasting on the beauty and glory of your Savior, you will be pulled by God's powerful grace at work in you, Paul said in this letter, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And you will eagerly pursue Christ's likeness as you focus forward. Paul has instructed us how to run for Christ in this life. We need to humbly acknowledge the truth. We are not yet fully sanctified. And we need to focus forward on Christ's purpose. We need to recognize that we will be resurrected and made perfect to be with Christ forever. In terms of a race, it's knowing where you are and where you're going. But in spiritual terms, it's knowing who you are today and who you are becoming. And the reason is, is because servants of Christ... Eagerly pursue becoming like their Savior. Paul continues in verse 15 and 16 to give us the third instruction for eagerly pursuing Christ's likeness. Look with me, starting in verse 15. He says, Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. The third instruction we find is that eagerly pursuing Christ's likeness requires faithfulness in the race. It requires faithfulness in the race. After Paul overflows in spiritual longing, he turns toward his fellow runners in the race to teach them. Runners like you and me. And he says, this is how mature Christians think. You ought to think this way. And if not... God will instruct you. Mature Christians humbly see that they are not done growing. Mature Christians focus forward on Christ's purpose for them. Mature Christians think this way. The idea behind this phrase, think this way, is to continually set one's mind on this type of attitude to constantly be intent on having this mindset and this ambition forward. This isn't a mentality just for baby Christians. If this is for the mature, this is the mindset for every stage of Christian living. We need a faithful mindset throughout our entire lifetime. That's the call. And in verse 16, he emphasizes again this need for faithfulness by calling Christians to, he says, hold true this is to keep striving and living up to christ's purpose to keep running in the path that god has paved for us in his word and he says we are to hold true he said to what we have attained this is a call to maintain a consistent life according to the understanding that each person already has from god's word this is such a gracious and patient statement from the Apostle Paul. He's saying, faithfully grow in Christ's likeness with what you know today. Paul doesn't come downhill to crush them saying, come on, slow pokes, let's pick up the pace. He encourages them to be faithful in their mindset. To be faithful in living out the truth of God's word that they know. We often wrongly conflate maturity with informational knowledge. So we think, I need to be mature, so I need to really nail down these theological questions I have, or I assume that I'm mature because I have reformed or right doctrine. According to the Bible, maturity in Christ is not measured merely by what you know, but faithfulness in living out what you know. And hear me clearly this morning, I'm not trying to dog on doctrine or say that it's unimportant. Doctrine is essential. But it's essential because Scripture says it's to be truly believed so that it will be lived. That is the power of God's truth. And that is the call for us to be faithful in our living. To be faithful in our running and pressing toward Christ's likeness. When thinking about faithful living, we often think about the finish line. We sometimes are tempted to even idolize the conclusion of faithfulness and ignore the consistency of faithfulness. Faithfulness is like a lifetime crescendo. It starts small and grows a little louder with each passing note, each passing month, and incrementally more after each passing year and decade until the final chord thunders throughout the entire auditorium. And friends, when you're doing a crescendo, there's a conductor. Jesus Christ is conducting your song. He's leading every note. He's setting your volume. And he's saying a little more, a little more, a little more. And then his hands start going, and he's into it, and then... You stand at the end, right? And it's this big, blasting note. Friends, we love the big note, but will you pursue the faithful building? Will you do the next step? The increase between each step is just one notch up. But in the end, you get the big note. And it's to God's glory in the end. What does faithfulness look like in your race Don't get caught up in looking for some big extravagant thing. It's just knowing what's the next step. Progress isn't made by simply planning a destination, but taking step after step to get there. Faithfulness is required in your race. So what's the next step? Kids, how are you doing with obeying your parents? If you want to grow in obeying God's commands to you, ask your parents for help. Mom and dad, I feel like I'm really struggling and I just don't know what's next. Can you help me see how God wants me to grow next? And trust your heart to your godly parents that has been provided for you and humbly ask them to help you take steps forward. Young adults, how are you doing with living out what you believe? Does scripture inform how you are spending your time, your money, how you're putting your energy into a career path or your desire to be married? Or is the one thing for you that I become more like Jesus Christ, my savior? God will direct you where he wants you to be as you eagerly pursue who God is has called you to be? For husbands and fathers, does your speech to your wife and children reflect the love Christ has toward you? Do your actions show a a submitted leadership to God's authority and your desire for them to honor and respect him as God over all? Do you ever ask your wife or children to forgive you for sinning against them? Is your forgiveness request specific? Are you calling your sin what God calls your sin? Maybe for some, there is a good habit of of humble forgiveness and repentance in your family dynamics at home. But let me ask you, are you asking forgiveness for the same thing over the last three months? Is there a repeated pattern of, I keep messing up in the same way. I say that I'm sorry. I feel grief. But there's not change. Friends, what are you doing to make war against your sin? That's the next step forward. I need to be in God's word. I need God's word to instruct my thinking and my feeling and my heart so that my repentance isn't this magical statement, but it's a recognition of who God is and how I've offended his children, his people, so that I walk in obedience to my Lord and Savior and I become pressingly onward toward Christ's likeness. What's the next step forward? For wives and mothers, does your speech to your children display Christ's love for you? Do you view parenting as a blessed mission assigned to you by God, that you're supposed to obey Him and follow His orders and His word? Or is it simply an opportunity for you to feel loved and admired and affirmed? Is there a pursuit in your parenting of your children that's in accordance with God's word? Do you search the scriptures and submissively embrace your husband's leadership as you seek to raise kids that know God and submit to His authority? What is your next step forward? Does the way you respond to your husband and wives reflect an eager pursuit of God honoring respect? We need more focus on sanctification and knowing what God says and living by his grace and obedience to his commands. Find your next step. Ladies, involve your sisters in Christ. Sanctification is not this sort of isolated project where I need to figure it out on my own. It involves the body of Christ. It involves submission to his word. Get your sisters involved and plant one foot in front of another and run the race. For our precious senior saints, are you actively pursuing spiritual growth or have you decided to coast across the finish line? Are you so focused on finishing out your days comfortably that you now only pursue Christ casually? Respectfully, as to a father and a mother, I want to ask and encourage you, rather, don't let physical fatigue squash your spiritual stamina. But let it instead be the fuel for fire in your soul that looks forward to future resurrection. Let it spur you on to continued growth in Christ's likeness. The church is strengthened by having sprinters with Paul's mindset. It needs saints who have run hard and long and that still wake up in the morning praising God that they get to take one more step forward that they long to be with their Lord, and as long as he gives them breath, they will faithfully sprint towards him. Are you seeking to finish well? We need faithfulness in our thinking and in our living in the race. Paul's call to us is clear. Servants of Christ are those who eagerly pursue Christ's likeness throughout every stage of life. And each step forward requires humility, it requires focus, and it requires faithfulness in the race. May we, like the Apostle Paul, press on in pursuit of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And when it's all said and done, and our days on this earth are finished, may it be said of all those who love Christ, they died running. Let's pray.